Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of The Hedge Podcast. My name is Jason Mountford and on this show, if you've not tuned in before, if this is the first time ever, first off, welcome. Thank you for joining me. On this show, I talk about growing wealth, but I talk about that in a way that is focused on making sure you can live the life you want to live. Designing a financial picture, a framework, plan, whatever you want to call it, organizing your finances so that it supports your ideal life. Because after all, that's the whole point of money, right? That's the whole point of all this stuff. The reason we want to earn more, the reason we want to save more, the reason we want to invest more is so that we can have freedom to do things we want to do. So that's what this show is show 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 is all about. Now today I am bringing you a guest uh, by the name of Laura Davison, and Laura is a property investor. Now I talk about property a little bit. I talk about it kind of obliquely. Um, I reference it. I know a bit about it, obviously, um, but it's not kind of my bread and butter. I don't recommend a direct property investment for people. Um, if I have clients who want to invest in property, we tend to do that through ETFs and funds and the same kind of structure that we would use for the stock market. So I thought it'd be worthwhile getting somebody on who is knee deep or neck deep probably is, is a better description into investing in property and being hands on, doing renovations, all those kind of bits and pieces. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation. There's a lot of stuff we get into. Um, I learn I learned a lot about, um, about property investment. And I think an interesting kind of side that we get onto is um, a lot of the properties that Laura invests in or some of the properties she invests in are what I would class as ethical property investment. So different types of um, uh, different types of properties that cater to, you know, low income people, people, you know, who are in difficult circumstances, who need short term accommodation, all those sorts of things. So it's an interesting conversation. Um, there, there's plenty of good stuff in, in today's show. And I'd be really keen to know what you think as always. Now, there's a number of different things that you can get that is in addition to the podcast. I've got the Friday Lunch Money YouTube live stream, which goes every Friday, 12 o'clock. I would love it if you could join me on there. There's loads and loads of articles that you can find on heaps of different stuff, investing, random financial questions, money questions, um, and all that can be found at the website, thehedge.io. I also want to keep asking you guys for questions. I've got a few questions in the pipeline, probably for next week's episode, but I want to keep those coming. It's great stuff. It's great content. It's useful for you guys to hear what other people are thinking because as I always say, nine times out of 10, if you have a question, there's almost certainly somebody else out there who has a question or the same question as well. So again, best way to get in touch with me, thehedge.io. Um, go to that website, check out the articles, drop me a line, and I would love to hear what's going on in your world. In the meantime, for now, let's jump into this week's episode and let's hear the conversation with Laura Davison. So joined today on the show by Laura Davison, and we're going to talk about property, which is a bit different for me, which is why I wanted to get Laura on the show. Thanks so much for coming on, Laura. Appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So you're a, a property investor. I've, uh, I follow you on Instagram. I've seen that you're, you're kind of heavily into the property industry and it's um, something that I obviously have a, a bit of knowledge on, but I'm not an expert on by any means. So I wanted to show that side of investing a bit more and I thought you'd be a good person to, to have on to, to talk a little, about, a little bit about property investment. So do you want to start by telling me what made you get into property in the first place? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've been doing property for a couple of years now. Um, I think it's um, always something I've wanted to get into. I just didn't necessarily have the knowledge on how or what to do in property. 
um, and I just sort of stumbled across um, a bit of a seminar about it um, and it just opened my eyes to the possibilities that property held. Um, I initially thought it was just something that you could sort of get one property and hold it until you were sort of 70, have a nice sort of pension. And um, I didn't really appreciate, you know, the cash flow that you could get in the interim and that it was probably more easily accept- accessible, sorry, than what I initially thought. Um, and it, just to give a backstory to me as well, um, so I, I co-run a different company, a, a print company, um, and I guess I wanted a bit of security. Um, you know, I didn't want to have everything just based on one company um, in case the demand fell over time. I wanted something just to have a bit of a backup um, in case anything went wrong. And I think COVID sort of showed like one income stream sometimes isn't necessarily enough. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it just sort of backed up that thought process really. Okay, great. And so, how long now have you been ha, been investing in property? What is it been? It's been a few years, has it? Or yeah, just a couple of years. So I'm still sort of early on in it, really, sort of in the growth stage. But yeah, a couple of years now. Okay. And what type of properties do you invest in? Um, so I've done a couple of few, a couple of different things, really. Um, so I've got a couple of vital lets, which is sort of um, your rental properties, just to a sort of family, um, professionals. And then also a HMO product uh, pro- property, sorry, um, which is sort of let by room. And then I've also done a flip as well. Okay. So um, buy to let is, from my perspective, I think that's where what most people think of when they think of investing in indirect property. It's, you know, buying a flat, buying a, a house and, and renting that out to, to a family. But HMO... Um, is something that's probably less well known. Do you want to explain a little bit about what what that actually is and how how that type of property investment works? Yeah, of course. So um, HMO is where we would let the property by room. Um, so typically we'd sort of be looking at a four or five bedroom house that we could let out per room, um, and then they have sort of shared communal spaces. Um, so those different areas that you can look at. So you've got your professional tenants, um, and something that I'm looking at more recently, which is sort of support living. Um, but it's basically it's a better way to increase the, the cash flow from one property. Um, typically, there's sort of more regulation around this, um, and you need sort of minimum room sizes. There's more to consider when you're sort of looking up front. Um, but because you're letting it per room, obviously the cash flow is more significant than what you would get from a normal standard buy-to-let um, property. Mm-hmm. Okay. And is the um, so you mentioned uh, cash flow a couple of times, and you've done the the flip thing before, and you got into a um, property with the idea of building up that cash flow. Is that what you tend to look for now? Is it looking for properties to hold for the longer term um, and generate that cash flow o- over time? Yeah, I think that's my initial. That was my initial sort of goal when I started looking at property was to look at cash flow. I want that sort of predictable monthly cash flow that I can sort of see and and use as, as like security. I mean, with property, you sort of tend to find over time that they do have capital appreciation anyway. Um, but for the, the main goal is just to sort of look for, for cash flow. Um, typically, if I'm flipping, it's just to sort of create chunks of cash to reinvest back into the portfolio rather than um, an actual stream that I'm sort of wanting to, to look at solely at the moment. I think in future, I probably would look at that. But at the moment, it is more the rental sort of cash flow thing that I'm looking for. 
Okay. So, I mean, on, there's there's so many like TV shows and stuff that make it look so, so easy to make money on property flips, right? There's, there's so are. many. <laughs> I know. There's so many of these TV shows that show people buying, you know, properties for like 12,000 pounds somewhere and then spending five on it and selling it for 80 and, and, and crazy stuff like this. What's what's it really like when you're looking to to make money flipping property? I imagine it's a lot more work than they make it seem on Homes Under the Hammer or whatever the shows are. It's a lot trickier than what they show on TV. I mean, they're sort of showing you that the high level stuff, I guess, um, it's obviously a lot more complicated. Um, So for for me, the sort of main strategy I look at whilst it is sort of buy to let, it is HMOs, um, I'm looking for properties that are going to be below market value um, and it's trying to find those in the market. Um, so that's one sort of issue at the beginning is sort of trying to find the, the houses that would stack up. Um, mm-hmm. So we, as it's a business, we wanted to look at the numbers up front and sort of understand, you know, what the purchase price is, what the refurb cost is. But then it goes into, you know, you've got your solicitor's fees, your broker fees. There are a lot more costs in that that you need to take into consideration when you're looking at your profit at the end. Um, but yeah, typically what we'd be looking is sort of buy below market value, do the refurb and increase the value before moving on to a mortgage product and sort of trying to pull some of that money back out. Um, but yeah, initially finding the deals that stack is is quite difficult. There are obviously more and more people getting into property and obviously there's more competition going for the houses. So it's trying to find properties um, that stack is the initial problem. Um, and then obviously you've got your funding issues as well, sort of being able to scale as a business um, it is probably another one, but there are a lot of challenges day in, day out, and it, it takes a lot longer to do than what people make out. You know, you can be looking mm-hmm. for months for the right house. Um, so it's not as if you can just go out tomorrow, unless you've got a strategy where you've just got a big pot of money and you want to put it in a house and keep it for the long term. That's more relatively straightforward. But if you're just starting out with limited um, capital, and you need to sort of recycle that money as much as you can, you're going to have to sort of look a lot harder to find the, the properties that, that stack up. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's quite a few bits I want to get into a little bit more detail there, but maybe if we start with, you mentioned about um, you want to try and, the first part, which obviously makes sense, is trying to find properties that are below market value. How do you go about that? Are there particular, like, do you look at it from like a suburb um, point of view? Do you look at it for sort of, um future infrastructure work that's going on what are the kind of things that you look for when you're trying to find those diamonds in the rough i suppose yeah i mean initially sort of start looking for the area so typically you can sort of see what prices go for in a particular area so you can um sort of weedle out some of the areas that just wouldn't stack up so sort of in areas that you might sort of buy to sell the house price is probably going to be a lot higher so you can actually look at knocking off of quite a few areas because rentals maybe just wouldn't work in that area based on what the price of the properties are versus what rental you could get in um mm-hmm. so you initially can sort of knock out um different areas by just doing sort of simple number checks on areas um, and then i'd sort of go in to speak to agents so if it's not an area i'm familiar with speaking with local agents can who are on the ground every day know the streets back to front can sort of show you where people are wanting to live and what the demand is like for those areas. I think that's really key is, you know, you need to get a house that actually is going to rent at the end of the day. You don't want to get something that's just set empty because there's no rental demand in that area. So mm-hmm. you've got to sort of look at and speak to local people to make sure that the demand is there. Um, and then, yeah, it is just sort of trying to keep in touch with agents and see what is coming onto the market. 
Um, these days you can try and find things off market, things like um, Facebook Marketplace and leafleting and things can help try and bring people to you before they hit an agent, which helps you more with negotiation on prices. And um, mm -hmm. so there are a few different ways that you can do it. Okay. And when you're looking at, um, I think one of the other things that, that does get lost in the shuffle, because um, I'm not against property investment. I think I think sometimes people get that impression off my um, off my um, podcast, but I think I'm not against it. I just think there's a lot more that goes into it than what people people realise. And one of the things is that um, often gets forgotten is is all those costs that you mentioned before, like solicitors' fees and ongoing management costs and that sort of thing. So when you're looking at these potential projects, in terms of a yield from a cash flow perspective, what kind of net yield so you've obviously got the gross yield which is just the level of rent compared to what you, you paid for the asset and that can often look very attractive before you've taken off you know costs and taxes and all those sorts of things so what kind of net yield do you do you look for to say to you yeah that's that's a good investment from a cash flow point of view yeah i mean you sort of want to be looking eight to ten percent for your your rental products but i actually sort of work on a return on investment basis so I want to know the amount of money that I've put into a deal and how long is it going to take me to get that out. Um, so typically mm -hmm. I've been wanting to be looking at sort of 25% ROI. So I want to know within mm -hmm. four years the money that I've initially put into the property would be brought back out. An ideal is that you get 100% or an infinite where you get the money out straight away and then you know you've sort of got that that house um, with no money sort of left in it. But those are much rarer to get these days. So typically you would be wanting to leave some money in. But yeah, I typically work on my return on investment because I collaborate with other people. So it's important to know how long I'm going to have money in that property. Um, and then from a cash flow perspective, um, there's a certain amount of cash flow that I would be happy with per month, depending on the type of property it would be. And I think one of the crucial points is just making sure it actually cash flows. Um, people think oh, I'm going to get a property and um, you know it's going to give me X amount of rental. But by the time you take a maybe a mortgage product off of it and um, sort of maintenance fees, management fees, you know, they could be looking at, at very little or if not actually owing the property because it might not um, actually stack up in that respect. So making mm -hmm. that once you take all those deductions off, you've got a healthy cash flow is is positive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how do you tend to um, budget for maintenance? Because again, one of the things with property is that um, it can be in terms of the, the ongoing cost can be a little bit more uncertain um, because things can go wrong maintenance what how do you have a rule of thumb that you tend to budget for that kind of stuff yeah i usually just keep like 10 percent to one side um i just keep a, a, an extra savings account to one side and just filter some off um and then just like so 10 percent of the cash flow that um, so 10 percent of the rental amount that i would get in i would just put it to one side yeah. okay and you mentioned before about the kind of buying the property initially, putting some money into it, some time into it, building up the um, or refurbing it, making it you know as you as you need it to rent out, um, and then moving it onto a mortgage product. How does that funding process work? So, do you just put up the capital yourself initially? You said you met, you work with other people. Are there you know? private equity equity type companies out there how does how does that kind of process work um so typically depending on what i've got at the time so i would usually put some of my own capital in as well um but i do mm -hmm. collaborate with other people um so it might be people that are wanting to increase the wealth more passively so they can understand that property um you know is a good investment to maybe maybe not directly want to get involved so we would collaborate they would mm -hmm. um 
bring the money to the table and I would find the deal and um, do the refurbishment and the work that was involved to go with it. Um, mm -hmm. Like I said, then we would move to a mortgage product after we've sort of increased the value of the property would allow me to draw down the money to pay back the person I've collaborated with. Plus they would get a bit of a return for, for getting involved in the first place. Um, and then I've got a, a, a property on a mortgage that I would then just pay, pay down each month through the rental income. Um, so that's typically how I work. Um, sometimes I might pair that with a bridge loan. Um, so I'm not sure you've mm -hmm. heard of bridging, but it's more sort of short term, higher interest, but um, yeah. it allows a little bit more flexibility when, when you're buying them, sort of going through the whole mortgage product. Um, but yeah, I would just then typically at the end, put it on a mortgage and, and keep it on that. Okay. And how do you, how do you, is that just a case of networking in terms of finding people that would work with you on, on those deals? I know you go to a lot of property events and you obviously have, um, you talk a lot about property on, on your social media. Is, is, is that just literally it? You just meet people in the industry who are interested like you and work together kind of organically like that? Yeah, it is. Cause I think when you're doing something like that, I think you, your interests have to align and your values. Um, so find someone mm -hmm. that you'll be comfortable to work with vice versa. There's, there's trust in that to, to do it. So it's, it's sort of, working on the relationships over the longer term like social media says a quite a good um platform because you know you can show what you're doing actively people sort of learn like and trust you then at that point because they can see you actively involved in property and they can see that you're working with other people and how the process works um and then it is about getting to networking events um just speaking to people about what you're doing and you know there are more people than you think that actually just have savings that I'm not doing very much, especially at the moment. The interest rates are incredibly low. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, um, a lot bit more on the money that we've got sat there. So just ch chatting to people, social media has been a big one and network events would probably be the second one as well. Yeah, okay. I mean, you you must love this stuff, right? Because it seems like from your social media anyway, that it's, you're 24 seven doing stuff to do with property <laughs> on your own time. Yeah, it is because I um I still do work full time. I've got um a print company that I run with my brother, so that takes up sort of nine to five Monday to Friday, and I do property around the edges. And then more recently, mm -hmm. because well, I really do enjoy property. I, I really like what we do with it, sort of taking the properties and and turning them into sort of beautiful homes. Um, and along that process, I realised I like the design side, so I started then doing a virtual staging service, which I offer to other investors and and agents. Um. So yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't carry on if I didn't love it. Um, but it is hard work. Like I said before, people make it look so easy. It's not. It's incredibly difficult. You can be working till late at night, getting up early to analyze deals. You know your weekends of viewings, and you know there is a lot to do in it. You have to sort of commit to it if you are going to do it. Mm, yeah. What's your What's your favorite part? Of investing in property what's the bit you like the most um i would actually say it's the designing so actually taking you see these properties in some of the worst states um they just need a bit of tlc and i actually do love just sort of seeing the change that you can make with them and sort of having to sit down and looking at the design how can you make this house um so mm -hmm. much nicer and and basically raising the living standards of people i think there's been stigma against landlords for a long time that you know um they're not providing sort of quality properties I know myself and the people I network with are, are really wanting to sort of push against that and are really sort of adding extra levels into the design to make sure that well-being's thought about and that the spaces are, are really sort of beautiful for people to live in and you know, just raising those standards. Um, one thing sort of mentioned is that the HMO that I'm doing at the moment, I am moving over to support a little bit harder. Um, mm -hmm. 
um, help house vulnerable tenants. Um, and it's something that sort of happened along the, the way and I sort of had and my eye on it for a little bit and finally sort of took the steps to, to speak to a provider and I'm moving my houses over to them at the moment. Um, and I think this is sort of giving you the extra motivation that you need as well in, in property because it feels more socially responsible. You know, mm-hmm. to, you know provide like gorgeous houses for people um, that, that really do need it and really need a safe place to call home. Um, so I'm really keen to sort of work with more providers this year to sort of provide more houses for these these kind of tenants. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about that. How does that work from a, um, you know, what, what kind of people are, are in there? Is it short term or long term? How does the funding work? Is it local authority who who assist them with, with paying the rent? How, how does that kind of process work? Yeah. So, I mean, you can do it through the councils directly. Some of them already have um, departments that would deal with this, but there are a lot more sort of CICs, like your charities that are coming up um, more independent. Um, for example, I work with a local uh, independent charity that uh, um, just wanting to support the particular town that, that I'm investing in. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the way that it would work is that I would have a lease with the provider for sort of a set period of time. Um, in this case, it would be three years. Within that time, um, they would sort of license it out to tenants um, that need it. And these can be a variety of different um, tenants. It could be um, homelessness, women escaping domestic violence, a whole host of different reasons. Um, and they can be sort of short term or longer term, depending on on what their particular circumstances are. But it's sort of trying to get yeah. them a foot into sort of um, getting get the right direction for their lives, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. But the beauty with it is obviously that there are then no voids with that. So you've got a contract with them for three years. So, you know, that property um, is sort of almost guaranteed rent. We've obviously got great yeah. clause and things in there, but you've got guaranteed rent for three years. Um which is brilliant for cash flow and forecasting because you sort of know where you stand with that. Um, obviously, normal HMOs usually have more voids because people, it's more short term for people. They, they come and go more frequently than we would have with a single let. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's a really good business model as well, as well as being able to help people along at the same time. Is it becoming more popular from a landlord's point of view? I would say so. Yeah, I think especially with COVID, there was a real demand for it at the time. And there still is like I speak to providers and they're just desperate for houses for people. They've got people lined up to put in these these properties. Um, Mm -hmm. So there is a a real need for at the moment. And I can't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah, it's interesting from an investment standpoint, because obviously ESG or ethical investment is really hot topic in in investing circles at the moment and there's obviously a lot more products coming on the market that do it for the stock market you know picking companies that invest uh, you know invest in green energy and don't invest in arms and stuff like that but when it comes to property large-scale property investment there's not really you know you can't really invest in an ethical way so i think this is like you say it'd be interesting to see how that progresses that part of the industry over the next few years because i could see that being a market for for a company to kind of umbrella a lot of those types of investments um, and offer that as a, as a financial product that invests in ethical um, property investment. Yeah. It, the only caveat with this is there are more barriers to entry for, for landlords. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, land, um, lenders are a little bit tighter on, on what they will lend to and the interest rates are higher as well. Um, I think it's yeah. the, the tenant demographic that 
you know, potentially PR wise, if they need to take the house back, it, it can cause some problems. There are a lot of yeah. them apprehensive about actually getting into that market. So you'll find there are a lot less lenders, their interest rates are higher and they'll make you jump through a few more hoops to get the lending sorted out. So it is mm-hmm. a shame that it can be so difficult to do and get into um, because I can see the real benefit of that and for, for the people that need these properties and as well as, you know, it being a good investment like socially. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. So for people who are wanting to get into property investment, um, what are some of the tips you would give them as as the best places to start? Because obviously you can jump in at the deep end and do stuff like you're doing now. But as with most investments and most new new things you take on, it can make sense to start start small and build build yourself up. So for people who are new to it, what would be some of the tips you'd give them of, of where is a good place to start? Yeah. Um, I mean, so I initially started by getting some training. So I mentioned I've been to like a two hour little course. I actually then went on to have more training. Um, and for me, it was really crucial because I just didn't have the knowledge. And I think you can make a lot of mistakes if you don't understand it fully. Um, mm-hmm. So I made sure that I got some training first. Um, and with that, I sort of met a lot of people in the network. And I think that was really crucial. Um, you know, you're speaking to people who are doing it day in, day out, that are more experienced, that you can sort of leverage that knowledge from really you can sort of take what they've learned and sort of try and implement it um so I'd I'd probably start by getting some training and really starting to understand it even if it's just like looking on YouTube there are plenty of videos on there these days listening to podcasts reading there's so many property books these days that have got you know the strategies outlined and can show you how to do it but just try and build up your knowledge before jumping in um and then just start small and work your way up um even if it's just you know your, your rental properties with even if it's just like a little bit of a refurb but not a massive one it gets you your foot in the door and you've worked through that process um but yeah just definitely try and learn and then just start small and get out there and just start doing it because I think sometimes you can get stuck at that first stage of just trying to learn everything and there's just so much to learn every new project I come across there's always new challenges to get over and it's just a case of picking up one at a time and, and just working on it. I just don't think you would ever be in a position where you're going to know everything. You just do need to learn as much as you can and just then get out there and start looking at something small and work on that. Yeah, okay. And so <clears throat> for people, either yourself or people that you have network with, hear stories about how other projects have gone and that sort of thing, what do you think are some of the, the biggest mistakes that, that investors make when they're when they're getting into property investment i think one of the bigger ones is not not having enough exits in place what they sort of teach is to make sure that you you know you might have an idea going into a property of what you're going to do with it and you might do the research on it and it, it might all stack up but say you get the project you do the re, uh, refurbishment and then I don't know, COVID comes along, for example, something like that, you know, the exit that you initially went in with might not stack up at the end. So having multiple mm-hmm. exits is really key. So if you're going to say um, flip a project, you'd want to sell it on naturally the market declined and there was no interest, no one was buying it. A backup exit would be that you could have a rental property from it. So doing those numbers mm-hmm. up front, making sure that actually if I can't sell it, what could I do with it? What other exits could I do? Could I sell it at a lower price? Could I rent it? And I think some people get stuck where it probably doesn't cash flow, for example, if they were going to rent it and then they're just stuck with the property that they can't sell. And especially mm-hmm. if they're on bridging loans and they haven't got the exit fees, you're, once your term's up on a bridge, the interest rates, rates go sky high. 
and then you're just losing yeah. money each month and it can just be a vicious cycle after that so I think there are a lot of due diligence that needs to be done up front to make sure that a deal is going to work and that you've got multiple options with it like I was saying with the HMO um for example um that one I was going to do um professional tenants um so I've got it already I had probably 18 months with professional tenants everything was great people really loved the house I'd, I'd spent a lot of time making sure the design was really nice and that it, it fit that the people that want to be in there and then um, I'm not sure if you'll have heard of it but the, there's um something called like you can get your council tax banded per room on HMO product uh, properties and mm-hmm. um, so basically rather than paying one council tax for the whole house you then pay council tax per room so yeah. that happened to my house so you know that took a massive hit on the cash flow and at that point it was then me looking at your strategy and sort of understanding well what other exits do I have with this property and that's why I've sort of eventually got into the supported living because that actually meant I could take a property that lost a massive amount of cash flow put it to a provider and because they pay for the bills the tenants are likely exempt from council tax anyway it meant I could push that profit back up again so I think you know, it's never just plain sailing. You've got to have different plans. You've always got to be analysing what you're doing um, and sort of adapting with the market as well. Yeah, interesting. Okay. I mean, all of this that you're, everything you're you're talking to me about here, it kind of, it, it's um, confirming what has always been my thought about property is that property can be a, a great investment. And number one, you've got, and I think that's for two reasons. Number one, you can leverage it. You know, you can borrow a significant amount of, you can put 20% down and borrow the other 80%. You can't do that with most other investments. You can't easily do that with the stock market. So you can make a profit off other people's money. That's a fantastic benefit to property. And the other benefit is that you can influence it yourself. You know, if you buy shares in Apple, other than buying a new iPhone every year, there's not a lot you can do to make sure that that stock does well. Whereas with property, um, you can influence it a lot you have to influence a lot so i think it's i think it's just for people it's just understanding that they're not the same thing you know investing in a portfolio is by and large it can be pretty passive whereas if you're going to invest in property in the right way unless you have a lot of capital up front it's not going to be passive is it at all no no definitely not so i'm certainly just in the growth stage i want to keep building on my portfolio and it is going to be a case of that i need to recycle that money as much as i can so it's going to be finding projects that i can renovate add the value to um, and recycle the cash in into another property um and so during that stage it's absolutely not going to be hands off at all there's a lot of work that needs to be done and it's not something that's done over a couple of months because if you're wanting to build up a significant cash flow you're going to have to get quite a few properties behind you to do that um, so there is a lot of work involved in doing it. So it's 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 not passive, but within a few years, you know, you could have, depending on what you want in, a portfolio which is pretty steady. Um, I outsource it quite can a lot. Become more passive over time. Yeah, so yeah. it's 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 hard work up front, but long term, the idea is it would become more passive as it goes on. And yeah, use agents yeah. to manage the properties for you takes that out of it as well. It's then just sort of keeping an eye on it and making sure everything's dealt with in the right way with it so longer term it is it could be more passive it's not completely passive you're always going to have to have some involvement in it but it, it does get to a point where it could be mm. okay and how, how much capital do you think is a good amount for somebody to 
sort of aim to have before they get started on this? Obviously, it depends on the, the value of the property that you're looking at initially, but kind of ballpark, what do you think is a good number for people to aim for? Depending on what their strategy is going to be, and it depends what they're wanting, if they're just wanting one property just to get a bit of cash flow and to use it as a pension, you could probably do it in 20, 25,000 if you're looking up north where the house prices are much cheaper and you don't want to do a refurb and just sort of sit your money in there getting a better return than what it is in the bank. You could do it in 2025. Mm-hmm. If you're wanting to look at sort of renovating a project, you're probably going to look at another extra 20, 25,000 on top of that. So you could be looking anywhere between 20 and 50,000, depending on how you're actually wanting to start out. Yeah, okay. So I just want to talk a little bit um, about the kind of industry as a whole, I suppose, the property industry, because it's, I mean, it always gets lots of publicity, but it's, it's had. Uh, extra levels of publicity over the last year or two because the market has been so strong um and you 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 mentioned about um the kind of network that you have with landlords wanting to put more focus on well-being and quality of living for tenants and that sort of thing do you think we're going to see with property prices going getting so expensive we're going to see more people being renters for life because it's not as it's pretty uncommon in the uk but it's not as it's quite common for people to rent long term in in european countries in in various places around the world but the uk and australia as well it's sort of everyone wants to be a homeowner do you think we're going to see any shift in that mindset at all um i think what i'm sort of seeing a little bit as well sort of like the younger generation is some of them don't want to be tied down you see more people Mm -hmm. wanting to travel and um be more flexible on where they live in um so i think there's always going to be a demand for rental properties Unfortunately, there is, you know, the rate rise in prices, which is, you know, a barrier to entry for some people. Um, the government do seem to keep putting initiatives in place to try and help that with the sort of higher loan to values and like the help to buy screen that they had in as well as at certain points. Um, but I definitely think there is always going to be a, a demand for rental. And I think some of the younger people are wanting to rent. I think there is less desire to ha- have um, a house and be a homeowner. Um in the long run, um, but there are always going to be people that do. So I think I think there's there's going to be a shift in some way or another. Do you think we'll see a shift in terms of um, move out of city centres? Obviously, we saw a really big move out of city centres when COVID was taking off in terms of where people were spending their time. You know, office workers weren't travelling into places like Manchester and London anywhere near as much as they have been life starting to get back to normal now offices are opening back up do you think we'll see any long-term shift away from city centers or do you think they'll come roaring back i personally think they'll come back i think it was an initial reaction to the situation um i think the jobs are there there's so many jobs in the city center people want to be close to the action they want to be where the jobs are where um you know, the bars and restaurants are, I think there's always going to be a demand for that. And I think, um, I'm sure I read something recently about um, the amount of people that actually were going back and it seemed to sort of, you know, be a strong strength that people were actually going back to the cities and that it was just a shorter term thing. Um, Mm -hmm. That being said, there were a lot of, a lot of the growth as well that came with um, last year when it, it was so strong was that people stuck at home in COVID and they realised that they needed somewhere to work from home and they wanted these outdoor spaces that they they didn't realise that they needed before when they were stuck in the house mm-hmm. and nowhere to go. Um, it really meant them reevaluating what they wanted out of a home. So I think it's really made people think. Um, but I think 
in regards to the city, um, I think it'll it'll go back to um, somewhere to where it was before. Yeah, and you 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 said before about the um, the initiatives that were put in. There's obviously a lot of work done to prop up the the demand in the last year or two. You know, stamp duty holiday, that sort of thing. Do you think that's actually changed? Do you think that's just changed the time scale on things? Because one thing that I've noticed, we're looking at, at potentially moving at the moment and there's not many houses on the market right now. Do you think that's just because a lot of that, a lot of people have kind of rushed to think, shit, let's get the house on the market now um, because the market is so hot, the stamp duty holiday is coming? Or do you think that that has actually, um, has actually changed the demand or has it just shifted the timeline around a bit? Yeah, um, absolutely. I think it really just sort of spiked everyone wanting to go. Um, so many people were just wanting to do it. It was it was a bit strange, actually. So for looking for the market from an outside perspective, people were saving on stamp duty, but the house price was getting pushed up a lot. Yeah. So they were actually yeah. spending probably more on the property than what they would do if just paid the stamp duty, which is weird to look from the yeah. outside because obviously we, we know the market, we know the area quite well, so we, we could see what was happening. Um, but mm-hmm. it definitely sort of, stimulated the market and got people buying and I think that's where this once that stamp duty ended we did see a slowdown in the market um that being said in my area there are people still wanting to buy um Mm -hmm. there's just not much um supply coming on demand definitely outweighs the supply at the moment um but it's definitely Mm -hmm. slowed and I think we're going to see it slow some more as well and do you think that's just because there's not going to be enough well let me rephrase that. So at the moment, there's too much demand for the level of supply that's on there. And so you don't think we're going to see, we'll get, is 2022 going to be a, a continual slow year for s- supply? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think it's going to be quite a little mm-hmm. bit slow on the supply front. I'm not seeing it change. I'm, I'm looking all the time. I can't see it changing anytime soon. I think, you know, people were just pushed to to move last year and, and now they've got no incentive to move. Um, things like inflation, the costs are going up. So that's going to have an impact on who's going to want to move because they're already seeing a price rise across the board. It's, they might think it's not the right time to um, sell at the moment. So I can still, I, in my opinion, I think it would still be a little bit slow this year. Yeah, definitely. Well, look, it's been really good to have you um, on to have a bit of a chat about property. I think um, you know it's it's interesting just hearing different perspectives and people who are who are knee deep in in particular types of investments. And you definitely um, have given given me a lot to to think about, and I'm sure the people that listen to the show as well. Do you want to just give us a bit of a, a plug of where people can find you if they want to connect with you, if they want to see more of the kind of content that you put out around property? Yeah, of course. So um, I'm mostly active on Instagram. Um, so you can find me at Laura Davison Property, and that's on Instagram. Um, I've got the same page on on Facebook, and you can find me at lauradavisonproperty.co.uk as well. Um, if you need anything um, on there, just drop me a message and I'll get back to you. Great. Thanks very much for coming on the show, Laura. really appreciate it. Real. Great. Thanks very much. Right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the show. I definitely enjoyed having that conversation with Laura. I thought there was a lot of stuff that, like I say, I learned I learned from that episode. Um, and if you're interested in property, I think there's a lot there for you to look into in a little bit more detail. If you want to see more content from me, as always, the best way to do that is going to the website, thehedge.io. There's loads of articles on there, as well as my free ebook, Modern Investing Fundamentals. If you've not picked up that uh, or copied that yet, 
head over to the homepage, the hedge.io and chuck your email address in and a copy will be sent straight to your inbox. I really want to hear your questions for next week's show. Uh, I've got a, a question episode coming up. I've got some really good ones already, but it'd be great to have one or two more as well. And Last but definitely not least, make sure you join me this Friday on the YouTube channel, the Hedge YouTube channel for Friday Lunch Money where I'm going to be jumping on live talking about all the biggest stories in investing and personal finance. And again, I want that to be about what you guys want to know about this week in investing and personal finance. So head over to that one at 12 o'clock this Friday and listen to what's going on. Listen to my take on it. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning into the show. I really appreciate you taking the time and I look forward to speaking to you next week.